Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Rejoining us today is Chris Ramonda, and we are speaking about his paper, A Double-Edged Sword, Metaphor and Metonymy Through Pictures for Learning Idioms. Very nice to speak to you again today, Chris. Good to be back. Thank you. Um, in the in the two years since uh, you have been interviewed, what have you been doing? Uh, uh, in terms of my research, um, yes. I've I've kind of honestly I've kind of moved a little bit away from from metaphor, but you know we're often kind of uh, doing research within the confines or the context that we're put in our in our classes and so on. And um, uh, currently, uh, I've um, kind of moved towards uh, doing research on study abroad. And the effects the coronavirus has had on the student study abroad experience. And that's mainly a result of me having served on certain committees that um, involved me in study abroad uh, context. And also due to the fact that since um, I no longer really teach different in tech classes that are basically of the same population type, uh, the same level students, same compositions and so on. It's quite difficult for me to do that kind of quasi-experimental research studies like the one we're, we're going to discuss today. So I, I very much, you know, I'm still interested in, in researching in, in metaphor and, and idioms. I just unfortunately don't have the uh, kind of context to do it properly, you know, to, to kind of conduct the, to conduct them in the kind of controlled way that I'd like to. To give some context to the paper that we're going to be speaking about, learning through pictures. Uh, what exactly was the basis for the study that you are uh, spoke about in this paper? So this this paper um, was basically the main study of my PhD thesis, and um, it was quite challenging to to write up this paper because the chapter from which I drew from my PhD thesis was about uh, 25,000 words and I had to cut it down to about 5,000 words. <laughs> that, that was quite challenging. That was probably the most challenging thing about writing this paper. But to answer your question, um, I'm very much interested in how to improve the efficiency of learning vocabulary from learners. Uh, idioms have been shown to be difficult for learners uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, the primary one being that, you know, um, they are instances of, of metaphor. A lot of um, idioms have um, metaphors that are to varying degrees somewhat transparent or not transparent at all. When learners first meet idioms for the first time, they can be very confused. And um, so I thought pictures are an interesting uh, visual channel through which to enhance the recall of uh, idioms once they do uh, know their know their meanings, and there are a number of um, theories that uh, I base uh, a lot of the uh, research design on that we can go into later if you want. One is dual coding theory; the other is like levels of processing theory. Well, the, the first thing that we could probably speak about is um, the difference between a, a literal only picture and a literal and figurative picture. What would you say is the difference between those two? Okay, yeah, so you're referring to the different picture conditions in this particular experiment. So to kind of recap, what I did was I wanted to see 
what was the contribution of having no picture at all Mm -hmm. versus having a picture that only represented the literal parts of the idiom versus another picture that tried to intertwine both the literal components with the uh, metaphorical meaning together. So the idea was to see whether it would be helpful to have the kind of metaphorical elements presented visually as a pathway to recall for the learner Mm -hmm. uh, under the presumption that should they recall visually the image associated with the idiom, it would help trigger the metaphorical or the figurative meaning of that idiom. Uh, So a good example, since this is a podcast, I can't really show, but I can maybe, (laughs) maybe explain. For for those of you uh, listening, uh, Chris is uh, looking at something on an iPad right now, I think. That's right. So for example, this one right here, like recharge your batteries, uh, a literal only picture would just um, basically be some batteries being recharged, plugged into a wall socket and so on, where the metaphorical version would be it's a, a man with his fingers plugged into the sockets of a wall. And in his stomach are these batteries with the charge level going up. Mm. So that way they could associate the figurative meaning of to get your energy back. And this is kind of associated with the idea that the body's like a machine. So when you recharge your batteries, you know, you're, you're actually getting your energy back um, in the same way that a battery gets its energy back through charging. Well, if I could ask, uh, how do you incorporate this idea into your teaching? Do you um, suggest that your students look at things in, uh, in, a, uh, in a figurative way or in a metaphorical way? Or is this something that you incorporate into your classroom uh, activities? I don't really teach a level appropriate for teaching of idioms. Uh, per, uh, I, I think um, this particular research is useful for informing the literature and maybe producing materials or curricula that would support the more efficient learning for, um, for idioms, either through individual study or through as part of a uh, uh, course in a, in, a, in a setting that's appropriate for the teaching of idioms. I think based on some interviews I've done with teachers in previous research, there seems to be quite sharp disagreement about the pedagogical value of teaching anti-idioms to begin with. And um, maybe I should just ask you first, Chris, like what, what is your sure. what is your impression? And then I'll tell you kind of what I've heard from other teachers and what I think about all that as well. What, what is your impression about the, the pedagogical value of idioms for second language learners? Do you think they're worth teaching or like what kind of what kind of uh, what, what kind of notion do you have about that? I think it really depends. I, I think when you get to the point of understanding the the underlying uh, meaning of idioms, I think it, it, it's very helpful. But at the beginning of uh, language learning, I don't think they mm. add much value mm. to uh, learning English. That, that, yeah. that's, that, that's, the, that's the best I, I could say. I, I think I, I pretty much agree with, with everything you said. Um, and that's the reason I don't really teach idioms myself, even though I'm interested in it from a research perspective. Uh, when I interviewed some teachers about their impressions in a separate research study, this was, this was kind of a, a smaller study of the, the PhD that I did a few years back. Um, I asked about the teachers about their impressions and there were basically two camps of teachers. One camp said, they're too low frequency, they're not useful, um, you shouldn't waste your time with them. And then another camp said, 
they're very interesting instances of metaphor. Students like them and it teaches them a little bit about culture at the same time. And it can maybe help raise their metaphorical awareness through the instances of metaphors that appear in, in idioms. And taken together, uh, you know, I think a, a sensible application in terms of teaching is to say, is the student interested in other cultures that they intend to go abroad and interact with native speakers who use idioms? Or are they just using idioms, you know, for, are they just going to use English or whatever language it is, second language they're learning in their home country for, you know, you know, business exchanges or writing emails or things where you don't usually use idioms, right? Or if they're lower level learners who are just trying to get credit and they don't really care, they're not motivated to learn second language, then maybe idioms aren't, aren't that valuable. But um, I think in addition to the um, uh, proficiency of learners, you know, learning idioms is kind of seen as the, the hallmark of the accomplished speaker, someone who can correctly use idioms in a second language, um, you know, it, it, it can benefit them in, in a number of ways. Um, and just to address the issue of frequency, it is certainly true that individual idioms are very low frequency, but as a class of words, they're very frequent. And furthermore, they, they kind of cluster frequency-wise at certain discourse function, as in, in certain discourse functions, for, for example, complaining, uh, topic transition, um, negotiation, summarizing, commentary. Uh, idioms tend to kind of cluster in these types of social discourse functions. And so I do think that they are important uh, at critical junctures in, in discourse in certain situations. Um, there's actually, you know, I could, I don't re recall a lot of the, the names off the top of my head, but there's some interesting other research in this area that specifically point to instances where idioms are highly beneficial. But well, to, yeah, go ahead. Well, let's talk about the, 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 the um, area of negotiation. Why do you think that, uh, I mean, this is something that I often speak about with colleagues of mine when we're working in the area of uh, English as a lingua franca or English as an international language. Why do you think that idioms are so helpful when it comes to the area of negotiation? Uh, do you think that they add some kind of value to the interaction? I should preface by saying that uh, that anything I say on this is just my my intuition because I sure. haven't actually looked in detail. Um, my guess would be that you know as Moon Moon um, uh, has said, uh, Rosamund Moon she has said that you know idioms kind of embody these shared cultural knowledge. So you kind of have like the interlocutors have this kind of interesting complicity going on when you when you reference an idiom. It's kind of like this covert knowledge in a sense or these kind of accepted truths mm. that both people agree upon in a kind of condensed format. You know what I mean? Um, so sometimes when you, like in a specific example of negotiation, you know, my guess would be you have two sides that are both trying to, to get something. So using idioms can kind of be a way to, to uh, facilitate that process because your references that is these things is kind of cultural commonalities, shared shared values embodied by these idioms to reach that point that you're trying to get to. That would be my, that would be like one of my guests off the top of my head, <laughs> but I haven't actually looked at the, the, the details of that particular studies that have examined that. 
I, I would, and I, I think I would probably agree with you on that one. So what is the study that is covered in this paper? What were you, what were you trying to get to the bottom of? Um, I wanted to know if through careful creation of pictures that embodied metaphor, if it would help learners remember the meaning of newly learned idioms more effectively than not. So when I say recall, like I'm talking about meaning recall, uh, I think meaning recall is one of the better measures of vocabulary knowledge. It's a little bit messier because you're actually asking the learner to produce something rather than to choose a multiple choice selection. But I, I tend to think multiple choices, I, I don't like multiple choice. Hmm. It's, 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 it's cleaner, the data's cleaner, but mm. I think in a way it's not because you have to come up with distractors and you know a lot of times it's, it's actually much more difficult to create a high quality multiple choice. Um, so it had its advantages and disadvantages, but I thought recall is a stronger measure of the strength of knowledge. You know, Lawfer has, has kind of mentioned that, that meaning recall is, it displays or it, um, it displays a stronger degree of strength of knowledge of the word. And because idioms are so difficult, I wanted to show that they could actually recall the meaning by producing it themselves. So, so in the study, you know, we had like three different classes and we had um, you know, three different transparency levels of idioms, low transparency, mid transparency, high transparency. So just to give the listener an idea, because we haven't really talked about semantic transparency, there's a lot of constructs used in this paper, um, uh, so it can be kind of confusing if, if the learner didn't have a little bit of background information, but um, semantic transparency refers to the degree to which, um, the, there's actually multiple definitions, but the one I use in my paper is the degree to which the, um, the learner of the idiom can, can kind of make sense uh, make a logical sense uh, from what the literal parts mean and with the figurative meaning, right? So for example, um, one of the higher transparency idioms was uh, skating on thin ice. And obviously, uh, you know, this could be motivated through you know, encyclopedic type knowledge where, you know, everybody knows, pretty much everyone around the world knows what ice skating is. And pretty much all human adults know that, you know, the perils of plunging into icy cold water. So it's a kind of easy connection to make. If you visualize someone skating on, on thin ice with, you know, cracks forming under, under the ice, right? But then you take an idiom like go cold turkey, which means to suddenly quit a bad habit. And suddenly, it's not so transparent to most learners unless they have specific access to the, to the um, etymo etymological knowledge or etymological origin of that idiom's um, meaning. So when you're actually addressing this in a, a teaching context, if this is something that we are looking at as how people understand language or is this something that, that it's basically that you're looking at uh, the language, how it exists rather than something that should be taught? You know, most of my classes, um, the last few years, I have basically my, my current teaching context is um, I, I, I work in the faculty foreign language studies 
at, uh, at Kansai University. And all of our students do a one-year study abroad during their second year, and then they come back. Currently, I teach my students who've already returned from study abroad. I, I don't think I've taught first-year students uh, in the last two years. Do you do any language analysis when they come back, like things that they've picked up overseas? Uh, the, the curriculum that we currently use is fairly rigid and fixed. Um, I'm not sure. I know a lot of, maybe your teaching context, Chris, it's a little bit more free, I'm, I'm presuming. But we, we tend to, aside from my seminar class, uh, the, the curriculum is pretty fixed. So, you know, we, we, we do basic things like we measure their gains in TOEFL scores, you know, <laughs> whether that's a good measure of, <laughs> of general English proficiency or not, uh, and things like that. But um, no, nothing, nothing in particular that relates to, to idioms, for example. Then let's, let's talk about um, language teaching in general. What do you think uh, in Japanese language teaching we should concentrate on more is there anything that you have found in your research that uh we should we should be focusing on i i myself i'm a, a father of two boys uh, who are going through school you yourself are a father uh is there anything that you think um through your language research uh it would assist uh students in this environment to uh work on more if they wanted to you know use english internationally or um or you know work abroad study abroad mm. well um i do think it just kind of connects back again to to metaphor maybe not idiom specifically but maybe metaphor more generally i think one of the the biggest problems is um the way commercial textbooks are designed and the content that they include tends to be quite dry and devoid of, of metaphor for the most part. There are exceptions, of course, and there are high quality textbooks out there. But my, my biggest complaint, and this, is, this isn't limited to Japan, I think it's, it's kind of a problem everywhere, is that um, you know, publishers are trying to attract the largest possible market. So they, they create these very generic textbooks for teaching English. But the problem is they sap all the kind of originality and creativity out of it because they have to be they have to be kind of very safe and generic because they're intended to to sell as many as as possible. So I, I think one problem is you know and a good example of this is um, if you look at the like the mismatch in some of the and Japanese students tend to in my experience at least they tend to um, have quite weak uh, listening skills um, and, and also speaking skills. Uh, and then their vocabulary is sometimes surprisingly uh, developed. Maybe they can't use the vocabulary, but they can, they can recognize it better and, and, read, and read more easily, right? Well, if, 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 I, if I could ask, um, uh, when you say that they have uh, weak listening skills, and I'm not disagreeing with you on that point, but what to you are listening skills? Well, I guess I, I guess I should rephrase by saying listening skills as measured through the activities in the textbook that <laughs> purport to improve listening skills. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> Since that's the only thing I have to compare with, you know, the the I guess what I'm trying to say is like there's this mismatch and difficulty level 
within a kind of four skills textbook intended for like if we use them for Japanese language or Japanese uh, students who are learning English, it seems to me like sometimes there's a mismatch between the, the, the words that they present and the listening that they present and the reading they present. Like in mm. some areas, it mm. seems like it's too easy. And in other areas, it just feels like it's far too difficult. And that's because it's very generic. It's not intended for a Japanese uh, audience per se. You know, it's, it's intended for this kind of more global, global audience. You know what I mean? So, mm. so I, maybe I shouldn't say that it's 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 weak in comparison to some of the other skills as they appear in the typical textbooks that are adopted at the university level in Japan. So, uh, based on your own research, what should be improved then? What what are the activities or materials that should be included in textbooks to improve mm. these kind of areas? I don't know if I would say what the content of the activities rather than the method of, of presentation. I tend to feel this is, we're getting a little bit more into my, my teaching philosophy, I suppose here, but I Fair tend enough. to think, Fire away. <laughs> I tend to think that learners learn best when, uh, when they're presented with new information, but it's not completely new. It's like, it's, it's, it's something that isn't so foreign that they can definitely relate to it, but it's new information. If it's, if it's information they already know, it's gonna be boring or uninteresting. So new information, but, but, not, but something they can relate to, and also something that they can, uh, you can personalize it in some way. You know, make it, um, you know, you, it, it, activities sometimes often just, um, you know, have like, oh, here's a list of discussion questions, and okay, let's move on to the next activity. Here's a fill in the gap. You know, sometimes you can have, uh, easy ways to adapt activities after they do the initial version and say, okay, now is this true or false? Or you can, you can do, do things to kind of personalize the activity in a way so that it deepens their engagement and they're more likely to attend to the input, which will later become part of their inner language. So I, I, think, I think part of the problem is, you know, I, I, feel, I feel students who aren't naturally motivated to learn English can become easily detached in the normal, typical, like general English uh, uh, classroom. Right. Well, just, just to just to put things into an actual context, myself and, and Chris have been colleagues uh, studying, working at different places for about the last fifteen years. And Chris is someone who I whose opinion I respect on many levels. I would just like to focus on one point of your your ideas which is how do you think that maybe and, and and i want to try and get this back to the paper that we're discussing do you think how do you think that metaphor and the ability to present language acquisition in relation to something that is i don't know a pictorial representation of of language how do you think that that assists with language acquisition um, in a second language. Uh, I, I suppose um, my going back to the kind of the paper and the, and the use of pictures. I think I'm most interested in finding ways for learners to acquire vocabulary efficiently, mm. because when you're learning a second language, one of the most daunting things about learning a second language is the many thousands of words that you need to learn not only passively, but actively too, right? 
um, in order to communicate in that language. And I think, you know, mastering a sufficient number of vocabulary items to be able to function at a high level in a second language might be the most difficult thing. I mean, I'm sure there's other things as well, you know, mastering grammar and, you know, pragmatics and all these other things come into play, but it's certainly got to be one of the most difficult aspects of, of learning a language. And uh, because I just had this natural um, uh, inclination towards, towards idioms, and because I think idioms have nice kind of make our instantiations of metaphor in an interesting way, I kind of um, was pushed in towards investigating uh, how to improve the learning of idioms. And because idioms are especially difficult to learn for learners, I thought picture, pictorial representation would be an interesting way to measure. Now, I should just add that the results of the experiment basically were that overall, the figurative pictures in absolute terms um, produce better outcomes than the literal only pictures and of course the no picture. But the gap was not that big between the literal and figurative over the literal only picture, but there was actually a big gap between no picture at all and any picture at all. So any picture seemed to kind of stimulate more attention. So the question becomes, did the, did the picture actually help trigger the, the figurative meaning? Or when they were presented with the picture that kind of related, whether it was literal only or literal plus figurative, generate just more attention and more noticing because it was more inherently interesting. But one of the interesting things about the uh, literal plus figurative picture is that the reason I call the article a double-edged blade is because it also had a negative effect too, mm. which, which, I, which I can discuss. Um, basically, metonymy was used in the pictures to help trigger the figurative meaning, but sometimes they would uh, over-specify the meaning in their response and then they got it wrong. So like there's a danger in using pictures too. So that's what I wanted to kind of elucidate. Like these, these findings, I wanted to say, use pictures when possible and when you're able to, but be careful in the way you present the pictures because they can actually distract and mislead learners uh, in, in addition to help them. Talk a little bit more about that. I mean, what were you trying to get from your students when you presented these pictures to them? So it was a very highly controlled experiment and it was a 45, 40 minute uh, timed PowerPoint presentation. This is not something you'd use in a normal classroom. This was for the purposes of investigating the research, right? So normally you wouldn't put on a PowerPoint, but I wanted everything timed very precisely. I counterbalanced all the variables and uh, I, I just wanted to know if the pictures helped. So I should just, I should just uh, you know, preface this by saying, you know, I'm not advocating for someone putting on a 30 minute PowerPoint, 40 minute PowerPoint with time slides presenting the data, presenting the, the idioms. This was just for the purpose of constructing a, 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 a good methodology, at least from my perspective. Um, so so they, they went through four phases of input. The first phase, they were presented with the, um, with the idiom, uh, just, just the idiom alone, and they were asked to speculate about the meaning in one of the three conditions. The second phase, they were presented with the idiom and given a choice of one of three key terms, and they had to choose which one most, most likely related to it. In the third phase, they were actually provided with the meaning in a paraphrase in Japanese. So that way there was no chance they could misunderstand what the figurative meaning was. So then the, the, the idiom, English idiom was paired with the paraphrase of the meaning in Japanese. Uh, in, again, with either paired with the picture, the uh, literal only picture, figurative literal picture, or the no picture. And in the final phase, they were given the idiom one more time and they tried to try to write out 
the idiom in their uh, Japanese paraphrase. And then the immediate post-test was essentially the same thing again. They had to, they were presented with a randomized list of the 27 idioms that were presented to them across these four phases of input. They had to produce in Japanese the paraphrase. And then two weeks later, they had to produce the same paraphrases. Then all these, I think there were 3000 paraphrases altogether, or roughly that. These were translated by a native, near native speaker back into English. And then we had uh, three native speaker judges. I was one of them. And then there were two other judges, but we were blinded into which, uh, which, uh, in order to reduce any bias, we, we didn't know which condition these paraphrases were related to. And then we had to kind of um, put them into a correct, partially correct, or incorrect paraphrase. And then that number that was converted into a score, and that was what was used to generate the recall values for each of these each of these idioms. So uh, it 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 does have some some deep value in the way that students internalize language and internalize uh, vocabulary. Uh, did you find that after this this study? that students would recall vocabulary uh, or recall these idioms in their regular speech? Well, this, uh, this was um, many years, uh, you know, this paper was published in 2019, but it actually started about eight years ago. <laughs> it took it a while to find a home, if you know what I mean. Uh, this particular class wasn't the type of class where, where we would be using idioms per se. It was a kind of intermediate level. It was actually quite good for the experiment because none of the students knew in the pretest, they knew none of the idioms uh, that they were taught, which was quite good. I didn't have to kick anybody out of the study for having already known some of the idioms that were going to be used. Um, but let me just go back real quick, Chris, because I wanted to make sure one of the most important findings for the paper was this double edge. So I just mm. wanted to just go back really quickly and show you an okay. example and see if I can explain. When I said earlier that the literal figurative picture outperformed all the others, that was true overall, but there was a huge standard deviation in the recall values uh, across between certain idioms. I was like, why is this idiom being recalled at like a 90% rate and this other one is like a 20% rate, right? So mm -hmm. I went back and looked at the individual data to see what was causing them to be counted as incorrect or partially incorrect. And let me give you an example of what I mean by overspecification, because I think this is the main takeaway from the experiment. Um, so for example, one idiom be in the hot seat, which means to be kind of placed in an uncomfortable situation. For the, for the literal picture, you just have a guy sitting kind of on a seat with coals and you can see steam rising up. He's in a seat that's literally hot, right? And then in the other picture, uh, it's the same, it's basically the same picture, but there's kind of like an interview situation where this, this supervisor is looking at a piece of paper and the person who's in the hot seat looks like he's going to be asked some difficult questions. You know, I think the actual paraphrase they were taught were being in an uncomfortable situation where one may have to answer difficult questions or something like that, right? Um, well, I'll just, just point out, uh, Chris is showing you right now um, four different pictures, the uppermost of which is someone who is literally in the crosshairs of let's say a gun site, um, someone who is sitting on a bench, the other person who is sitting in an interview, and the other person who is sitting on a literal hot seat. 
Yeah, so the sitting duck, the one above, that's a duck man. <laughs> so that was the uh, figurative meaning for a sitting duck, which means to be an mm. easy tar- easy target. So the adding of the crosshairs was supposed to help them get the the, the figurative meaning of, of, of that particular one. But uh, in this one here with to be in the hot seat, some of the students, and this is more of a failure of the creation of the picture. You know, this was very much an imprecise science when you're trying to create pictures and images for metaphorical images. But um, in, in this one here, some, some people answered to be in the hot seat meant to be in a, in a, to be in a job interview or to be mm. in an un, uncomfortable interview. Mm. So what's so interesting to me about that is, although it misled them and caused them to get the answer wrong, it told me that they were thinking about the picture at the moment, two weeks late, like two weeks after they had completed this session, and they had no other contact through exit interviews. We found out they had no additional contact or no additional study or anything with these words. Numerous students who were exposed to that particular picture were the ones that got that wrong. So that was the kind of the, the main takeaways. The pictures can be powerful pathways to memory, but you need to be especially careful the way you construct them because learners will latch on to these kind of small little aspects and sometimes overspecify. So the use so, of metonymy to help them learn could sometimes backfire, basically. So uh, how would you recommend students to uh, work on ways to create memory pathways uh, when it comes to things like vocabulary? Is there anything that you've learned from what you've done in this research that would mean that you could make better memory pathways through mm. images? So uh, Frank Bowers, he's he's uh, done some research in what's called etymological elaboration, and it's quite different from what I'm doing here, but I think that's more like learner focus, something the learner can do. And the basic idea is uh, the learner is kind of given the etymological background of an idiom, and then they're encouraged to kind of create their own like mental scenery around the etymology to help them create a visual link to the meaning of the idiom. Now, that's not what I'm doing here. This This is more... I think it's not really aimed at individual students. It's more aimed at for people who are going to make curriculum and produce textbooks. And because here's here's a problem. There's a lot of idiom textbooks out there who do use pictures, but they're mainly for, I think Fiona MacArthur was commenting. I know Frank Bohr's also made this comment that a lot of times it's for entertainment value only. It adds very little educational benefit. A good example, I remember I attended one of Frank Bohr's seminars and he, he used the example of fly off the handle, which means to become very angry. And then the text, and he, he, he included in his presentation, a textbook picture of fly off the handle. And it was like a dove flying off the handle of a, so, so what, that, what that, more of that, a that, That's mismatch. not even the idiom though. <laughs> yeah, that's not even, yeah, that's not even the idiom. It's just like something flying off a handle, right? And mm. that's supposed to somehow help them learn the figurative meaning of the idiom. So one of so one of my things was about this about this research was I wanted to come up with a system that would help educators create higher quality images for idioms that actually relate to the meaning of the idiom rather than just be kind of for fun. You know, it, while there's nothing wrong with that, I don't think that those images are necessarily contributing to the the learning of those of those items. So uh, in relation to that, uh, what have you done? Um, have you created better uh, images that we can use in relation to these idioms? Or, well, actually, now that you mention it, this is a great chance for me to plug to plug a, a shameless plug for my for my um, 
textbook I've been working on for a long time. Excellent. So uh, what I wanted to do is since the, I, I felt that the, the picture system, the literal figurative pictures were successful in the research, I wanted to try to continue this work. And I have uh, worked with the illustrator that I used who did the initial literal only and literal plus figurative pictures. And I've had uh, throughout the last five or six years, we've come up with over a hundred uh, different pictures for various, for various idioms. And I'm currently working on a textbook and it's nearly finished, but the problem is that um, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know if it's going to be better to self-publish or just hold out hope for like one of the, uh, for a more uh, recognized publisher. The problem is it's such a niche area with idioms. It's a little bit, it's a little bit difficult. Oh, I, I, if I could just say what I'm looking at right now, and we will share this with our, with our listeners, you have some absolutely fantastic images. Yeah. So because I, I wanted to be very careful about the construction of the images, every single image, and I even bounced ideas off my colleagues too, because some of them were actually quite difficult to, to come up with high quality images. Uh, a very scripted description of the concept of the picture uh, and the illustrator, he was just a genius at bringing these, these pictures to life. Um, so basically uh, once the pictures were in place, um, I started working on the textbook and the textbook basically presents um, you know, there's some input and output activities, but it's basically uh, around a hundred of the, the the idioms that are imageable and fun and interesting and not too low frequency. Some of them, you know, a lot of the idioms are quite mm. low frequency, but I tried to focus on ones that were interesting, uh, fun, and could be represented through an interesting image. And I uh, organized the textbook uh, thematically and it's it's in the final stages. I, I actually have put it off for the last uh, year because I've I've gotten really busy with other things. But it's pretty much ready to go once I finish editing. I, I would I would agree. This is um this is very very interesting. Where do you want to go with this? I mean, are, are you interested in um, moving forward with idiom as a way of teaching or? Uh, do you have a, a different interest in terms of research going forward? I mean, as you know, as I mentioned, it's it's kind of not up to me. It really depends on the type of classes that I'm that I'm teaching. Um, in terms of my research, uh, I, I really enjoy uh, I really enjoy setting up experimental or at least quasi experimental designs. Um, the problem is, I just don't teach this. You know, for example, when I was teaching at my previous university. I might teach three or four coma or three or four periods of the same type of student, the same level and so on. But now every single class I teach is a different topic and a different uh, composition of students. So it's really difficult to set up experiments to compare different groups. It's, it's, it's more difficult now than it was previously for the reasons I mentioned. I also think that, you know, anytime you're dealing with human participants, it's, it's, it's a lot of work and, you know, it's, um, and things can go wrong, you know, things don't go according to plan. Um, and I'm at a stage where I just don't have the right context to do that type of, of research now. So I've kind of moved towards more towards like qualitative interview 
mm-hmm. interview-based data for the study broad uh, research I mentioned earlier, like the effects of uh, coronavirus on student study broad experience. That, that I feel is is a, a little bit uh, easier given my given my context. We, we're, we have to deal with the participants we have rather than the participants we want, you know. And I think that's that's the major problem. I'm sure you've heard of the replication crisis and 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 you know social sciences and and I, I think it's probably even even worse in applied linguistics. If you know what I mean? Because because. Probably. People, I mean, you know, we're researchers and teachers at the same time, yes. and it's it's not like we can just magically get the, the the intact classes that we want in order to do do these experiments as rigidly as as we would hope to do. If if you can't at least have the initial setup where you can compare different groups that are relatively uh, similar then you know at least in my case i think i'm i'm better off moving into into a different type of research that i can actually even if it is more exploratory at, at least it's something you know i can uh, trust in more when the results that i get then what is your next level of research where are you going from here gosh uh well i'm i have one more i got a, a four year kakenhi a grant that i'm still working through now um, that's the study abroad. So I haven't really thought about what's next because I have one more year, uh, to go on the, on the study abroad grant. And it's, it's funny, it's, it's funny because actually my initial proposal was a little bit different from what I actually started doing because when I submitted my, my grant proposal, it was, uh, a different aspect of study abroad research, but it was well, right just, before well, the- just, well, just to be, just to be clear on this, we, we get, these grants are three to four years and you know we, we 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 do our best to complete exactly what we said we were going to do but uh from time to time we don't always we we don't always have the ability to uh complete them yeah and it's and it wasn't really a, a huge change it was mainly the in the beginning i was looking at one particular aspect of study abroad experience and this happened right before the coronavirus hit well, when coronavirus, oh. when the coronavirus hit, half our students didn't go study abroad. So, all, exactly, so yes. at the very first year, the the Kaiken, he was like, "Oh gosh, what do I do?" So I I just kind of changed the focus of 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 the study abroad research to 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 look at how the coronavirus impacted their study abroad rather than my my initial idea. So it ended up working out okay. It just kind of delayed things a little bit, and um, I I just got all the data. And this past semester, after the students had returned from study abroad, and uh, yeah, this is the year where I'm going to be basically writing up, writing up all the papers uh, since I'm moving into the, the the fourth fourth and last year of the Kakenhi. So I haven't really started about my my last step because I have all this data that I've been sitting on, the, trying to to put out there uh, in in the last year of the in the last year of the grant. There is a, another paper that I that I I'm really content with um like the the paper that we covered today this was this was this was probably the paper no not probably this was definitely the paper that i poured the most effort and time into by far compared to anything else it was as i mentioned the main study of the the phd and you know i the amount of preparation and steps were just enormous having said that there was another paper that recently uh has come out 
which was a lot more like low key, but I, I was really happy with the, with this paper because it was something I really wanted to say. And it was the fact that uh, I think, what is the title? It's a uh, graded readers, the case for no choice. So this is a different topic that I'm interested in uh, kind of as a side project, uh, because I, I, I do think graded readers are um, a good tool for learners to um, study on their own, to build their reading fluency, develop their uh, knowledge of vocabulary, and to just enjoy, uh, learn to enjoy reading in general. And um, in this paper, I basically uh, argue that uh, the notion that students should always choose their own books isn't necessarily isn't necessarily uh, a good decision at the curricular level. And uh, this paper argues that in some cases, some of the time, it's appropriate for a class reader to be selected by the teacher in which everyone reads the same books and then they have the same shared knowledge. They can discuss the content of the story together. And then there's this kind of enjoyment and there's a way to tie in in-class curricula with outside of class assignments. Because currently uh, in a lot of teaching situations, uh, graded readers, I, I believe, are kind of treated as an afterthought. I've been in programs where it's like, okay, we're gonna read this book outside of class, but then there's nothing done with that book. They come back, maybe they take a five item quiz. Okay, done, let's move on to the regular lesson. But there's nothing in the lesson that says, oh, the reading of this book was important, right? But when you have a class reader, Everyone has the same knowledge from having read that book. They can come into the class and you can organize uh, more interesting classroom activities and themes related to the textbook if you do have class readers. So this, this paper I published was from some data I collected several years ago, and it looked at students' reactions to having to do class reader because they had both class readers and they had individual readers. And many students preferred the class readers over choosing their own books for some of the reasons uh, I mentioned. And that just came out, I think, uh, last year in ELTJ. The paper that we've been speaking about today is a double-edged sword, metaphor and metonymy through pictures for learning idioms. And I would like to say thank you to Chris Ramonda for once again being a guest on the show. And uh, you are always welcome to come back at any time that you want. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chris. It's a pleasure to be back for round two. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.